Job 32, 1 through 5. These three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together, for the fellowship that we have already had, and Lord, for the, the, this time of singing where we have, we have leaned on you, your greatness, your majesty, Lord, as we have lifted up our voices in song. Lord, thank you for the ministry that comes to us through song. But now, Lord, would you allow our hearts to be humble? What we know not, Lord, would you teach us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us? Lord, what we have not, would you give us? And would you allow me, as your messenger, to, to simply reflect your truth to the hearts of your people so that we can be more conformed to the image of your Son? Oh, Lord, allow us to be teachable, we ask in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This morning, I want to consider the why, the who, and the what of these six chapters. Why do we have these six chapters here and now? Who is this man Elihu, and is he worth listening to? And then what is it that God wants us to hear from this text? And so we're going to approach this section of Scripture um, by recognizing that we face three challenges when we encounter these Elihu passages. And these challenges really fall along these lines, and this is how we're going to look at it. We're going to be faced with the challenge of Elihu's inclusion. In other words, why is it even there? Secondly, we're going to be faced with the challenge of Elihu's character. And third, we're going to be faced with the challenge of Elihu's charge, the, the, the comments that he gives, the, the, the encouragement or the, the commentary that he brings. So let's jump right in here to the challenge of Elihu's inclusion. Why does Elihu get six chapters? It's a good question. Now as we go back in the story of Job, we remember that there are, it begins with two chapters of narrative, where we're taken into this heavenly realm where God interacts with Satan and he says, have you considered my servant Job? And then, of course, we find out about Job's suffering at the hand of Satan. He suffers loss of his children, of his possessions, of his reputation, and then eventually his own health. And then we get to chapter 3, and chapter 3 is kind of an anchor in the story because it's Job's lament. Having experienced such loss, he cries out to God, and he cries out to, to God in such a way that he says, I wish I had never been born. And I think sometimes we who are listening to the story have felt that way when we've gone through times of crisis and difficulty. And then we, we get into chapter 4 through chapter 28, and this is a long section. This is where Job encounters a discussion or has a discussion with his three friends. They come to help him. They come to comfort him, and they, they speak to him, and he responds to the things that they say, and there's a lot of give and take, and there's a lot of arguing going on. And there are three cycles of these speeches, but there's a sense in which as the speeches go on that the speeches get a little bit shorter. In fact, the last cycle, one of them doesn't even speak. And now at the end of chapter 31, we read the words, the words of Job are ended. 
And maybe we should have continued one verse into chapter 32, verse 1, because there it says, Job's three friends ceased to answer Job. So Job basically has given his last speech. He gave a speech to his friends. He gave his speech to God. He was on the stage. He dropped his mic, and he walked off. And his friends are silent. And as we've been laboring through this, Job has been crying out, saying, God, I want to hear from you. I want to have answers from you. I want to take you to court in the sense of, I, I want to force you to say something. And it's silence and silence and silence. So, so it would be right for us, it would make sense to us, that the next thing that we read or the next thing that we hear is for God to speak. So we're expecting now, with, with this this encounter with his friends to be over, and Job having kind of given his, his last argument that God would come on the scene and say, all right, let me tell you what's going on. But that's not what happens. Rather than God speaking, we have six chapters of Elihu's wordy ramblings. Now, isn't Elihu just saying the same things as Job's three friends? Why do we need to listen to more of the same? Why can't we just go from Job and his three friends straight to God? Now, I have marinated on this text for a while. And I've been reading a lot of commentators, so I'm actually going to read some of the things that they've said. Because quite frankly, guys, there's a lot of good people out there that disagree about how to approach Elihu. And I'm not as smart as these guys, but I'm trying to sort through it personally. And I'm going to say some things here or repeat some things that they say to help move us along. I like what theologian and commentator David Atkinson says. He says, the artistic skill of the author of these chapters in sustaining the tension, I have it up here, uh, in Job, and also in preparing us carefully for the final word from the Lord is unsurpassed. So according to Atkinson, Elihu's words are doing two things. They're sustaining the tension in Job, and they're preparing us carefully for the final word from the Lord. Now, I want you just to pause, and I want you to think about that. We might think that we're ready to meet God. And the wisdom of the author here, and the wisdom of Elihu being included here is to sustain the tension and to prepare Job in particular carefully for that final word from the Lord. So Elihu is not just more of the same. Some distorted theological assumptions and accusations about Job. Oh, there are some things that he gets wrong. But Elihu is contributing to the story in a unique, unique way. He is serving Job by preparing him for his coming encounter with God himself. How many of you are prepared to meet God? You say, well, I know I'm a believer, so I can enter into heaven. No. Have you thought about standing before him? Have you thought about how majestic and almighty God actually is? That the words that you would say would probably come out as blah, 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 blah. Because you wouldn't know what to say or how to say it, and you'd be so consumed with who he is. And so Atkinson continues to say, he says, we have heard Job's passionate last stand. We are waiting for the Lord. These chapters give us space between Job and Yahweh. They illustrate just by being there that Yahweh is not forced into a quick reply by the intensity of Job's entreaties. Let that sink in. God acts in his own time. He is not at human beck and call. He comes down his own secret stair, and in his sovereign and gracious care, he decides the timing of his intervention. Now, friends, that's a powerful statement. 
And friends, this is a most helpful lesson for us. Simply by being included in this story at this point, we're reminded, first of all, that God is not forced into quick replies by the intensity of Job's entreaties or by the intensity of our entreaties. Our prayers, our fasting, our spiritual discipline, our worship, our Bible reading doesn't hasten God to act. No, God comes down his own secret stair in his own sovereign, gracious care when he decides to come. Sometimes we as Christians are more like the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18 who are in this kind of competition with Elijah. And they're doing all these things to themselves, somehow trying to, to call on God to do their bidding. And sometimes that's what happens. We're like, God, I prayed. I fasted. I read my Bible. I went to church. I'm being good. How come I'm not hearing from you? How come you're not answering this prayer? It's because you have been caught up in the pagan mentality that says, God is like a genie. Rub the lamp. Do these things, and he will be at your beck and call. But God comes down his secret staircase into your life when he wills and for your good. And he always acts right according to his sovereign purposes. Friends, it is good for us to remember that God is never, never late. God is, has never apologized for being late. He is always right on time, and his acting is always, always, always under his sovereign and gracious care for us. So Elihu and these chapters that he gives are an encouragement to us to be humble and to trust God, or as the psalmist say, to wait and to watch. So when we're going through suffering, when we're, we're lifting up to him these agonizing cries for help and for relief and for wisdom and for understanding. When, we, when he doesn't respond to those cries, what is going on? Does God not care because he's silent? Is his silence broadcasting that he's aloof or that he's disinterested in us? Again, another author, Christopher Ash, helps us here. He said, God is doing something so ultimately wonderful that unanswered prayer is the necessary price of achieving it. And Job begins to experience this. Did you get that? Unanswered prayer is the necessary price of achieving it. In other words, God wants you to experience unanswered prayer to get to what he is going to do. His prayers will be answered, but Only when his sufferings have achieved that for which God purposes them. In a deeper way, it was the same for Jesus Christ. In a similar way, it is yet the same for Christian people today. Now get this. When God remains silent in answer to our urgent cries, it is not that he does not hear, but rather that it is somehow necessary for us to cry in vain and wait in hope until he achieves in us and in his world what he wills to achieve. In other words, you're crying. Your struggle, your lamenting is the very means by which God is accomplishing his purposes. So what is the point of Elihu and these six chapters? He is helping Job prepare to meet his maker. And for us, friends, we must recognize that God often uses circumstances and people to help prepare us to meet our maker. Elijah, sorry, Elihu serves Job as a tool to prepare Job for his encounter with God. 
He serves by confronting Job and helping Job to grasp and grow in godly wisdom in anticipation of standing before God. I'm going to read some more of what Christopher Ashe says. It's not up on your screen, but just listen to, to some of the things that he says. He says, Godly wisdom is not so much a word spoken in the human heart from the outside as a character formed in the believer by the Spirit of God working by the Word of God at the deepest level of the human hearts. In setting before us in Job these speeches in which truth and error are mixed, which has been a challenge for everyone reading through this, God invites us to think for ourselves, to puzzle, to engage with the process of wisdom fashioning in our minds and hearts. He says, there is an aspect of the word of God that comes authoritatively to us from above, from the mountaintop of Sinai. This is the law of God. But there is also an aspect of the word of God that gets under our skin and into our soul and beavers away within us as we meditate, puzzle, and think about the world and our place in it. I love that picture. The word of God beavering away. This latter facet, he says, of the word of God does not respond to the immature request to tell me the answer. Rather, it draws the seeking and searching believer into a lifelong process of wondering and prayerful meditation on God's word. Now, friends, hear this. There is a there's an immaturity that says, God, I just want the answer. God says, I'm not going to give you the immature answer because I have something greater for you. It is often said that all of life is preparation for eternity. And to that end, wisdom is the beavering away of our hearts with the word of God in preparation for eternity, in preparation for meeting our maker. So friends, as we look at these six chapters, they're not just thrown in there. Some people have said, these don't belong. This is an addition to the text. No, there is a purpose here. There's a, there's a sustaining of the story, but there's a preparation of Job and some things that have to go on in Job that Elihu is God's tool to bring about. And sometimes when we're struggling because we want answers now, we end up falling into the ditch because we're not patient with God. And so we grab a hold of things and we don't trust Him. And we end up doing things that we shouldn't do. And yet what God wants to do is He wants His Word to beaver away within our hearts, teaching us, shaping us, molding us for His purposes. That's the challenge of Elihu's inclusion. It is there for a reason. So, let's now consider the challenge of Elihu's character. If you read a lot of commentaries on this section of Scripture, one of the things that you hear about is, you know, Elihu was just a, an arrogant man, young man who just had a lot of, you know, a lot of hot air that he had to, he had to spill. And there's a lot of truth in the text, and there's language like that that describes that. So who is this man in Elihu? Why is he worth listening to? And for many people, Elihu is an enigma. He's, he's a puzzling character whom God uses. But we must be careful that we don't simply write him off as a misguided fool. He's not a prophet speaking accurately for God in everything that he says. And he's not a false prophet to be utterly condemned. Doug O'Donnell, another commentator, I think helpfully and accurately paints a picture of Elihu when he says he is a flawed prophet, not a false prophet. Any flawed Christians here, but not false Christians. You get that? We can be a flawed pastor but not a false pastor, all right? So what are his flaws? Well, there's two flaws that kind of scream from the text. And let's go back to verses 1 through 5 of chapter 32. We'll see it there in the text. We'll pick it up at verse 2. Then Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzite of the family of Ram, 
burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends. He burned with anger, it says at the end of verse 5. He burned with anger. Do you think the narrator wants us to understand something about Elihu? Maybe, perhaps, by chance, he had a problem with his anger. I think what we find here is that Elihu appears to be an angry man. And we just see that over and over again in this kind of beginning section, which as, we've looked at, as we looked at Job and, and, and particular narrated portions of Job, I think what we find there are clues to help us interpret and understand what's going on. That's what we have at the beginning and the end. And these narrative portions help, help to kind of set the stage for, for some character issues, in particular with Elihu. Now, we might be f- tempted to say that Elihu's anger is justified. Job's three friends gave Job a distorted theology. It's true. Job had said some very dangerous things about God. It's true. Job is left without help. It's true. But we must be careful that we're not thinking that his anger is righteous anger. Certainly there may be some righteousness behind it. Again, Christopher Ashe says, he has heard God maligned as an evildoer, and he is livid, and he indeed ought to be. But usually when we think that we are righteous in our anger, we end up not being righteous. <laughs> usually when we think, oh, you know, this anger is, this is, this is righteous anger, we typically have moved over from righteous anger to sinful anger. You see, Elihu's anger doesn't serve Job well. In fact, it inflicts pain through overreaching accusations against Job. And this is what happens when anger gets the upper hand, isn't it? It begins to overreach with its claims and its statements and its conclusions. Listen how Elihu paints Job in chapter 34 and verse 7. Chapter 34 and verse 7. It's good for you to read it right there in your text. Here's what he says. Now, this is his claim. What man is like Job, who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers, who walks with wicked men, That's not an honest and accurate or a faithful depiction of Job at all. Job is a a man suffering deeply in the most severe way. He's trying to sort through the, the grief that he's experiencing. He's looking for answers. We understand the struggle that he's in. And that is just not the kind of thing you say. To say that he's scoffing like water, that he travels with a company of evildoers, or that he walks with wicked men is an angry overreach. Certainly, Job is struggling. Certainly, Job might be presenting positions that his friends have said, you're acting like a wicked man, because his friends didn't know that Job actually was not suffering because of some sin that they were claiming. It sounds very much like Psalm 1, doesn't it? Just these words here. Not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful. But what Elihu is saying is that Job is just like that. The truth of the matter is that Job isn't suffering because of sin, but because of his faith. Satan Have you considered my servant Job? He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. and He turns away from evil. That's a man of faith. And ever since his suffering began, Job has been on a journey of faith, seeking to apply what he knows about God, crying out to God for help where his wisdom and understanding is lacking. And that is just like us. We go through the same things. But remember what Job said after he experienced the suffering that took place in chapters 1 and 2. 
in those chapters, he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is theology, deep theology. Then he says, shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil again? That is theology that comes out of an understanding of who God is. And even the narrator kicks in to help us understand by saying, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, he says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And so it's worth remembering what James says in his letter, that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Friends, we need to hear this. Whenever you communicate angrily with your spouse, your child, your friend, or your coworker, your harsh and angry words are not serving the purpose you think they are. If you think anger is a tool to bring reconciliation, you're missing the point. But somehow in the midst of that conflict, we think that anger is a good tool to use. And we're just doing damage. And you know what it's like, especially if you've been on the receiving end of that kind of anger, to be the object of someone's wrath does not help you bring about reconciliation. If anything, it either stirs up more wrath in you or it causes you to shut down. So Elihu, first of all, appears to be an angry man. Secondly, Elihu appears to be an arrogant man. Let's return to chapter 32 and verse 4. And notice it says there, Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they, Job's three friends, were older than he. There's a deference going on here. And it does, does help paint the picture of what's been going on here. As Job has been interacting with his free, three friends, other people have been listening. That's a little insight in here. Now we don't know how many. There are some indications about some other people that, 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 that the the friends and Job kind of make allusion to, but clearly Elihu's been there and he's been listening to the whole thing. So I think it's appropriate to say other people were there too, other people were listening. And so this deference is commendable, but what seems to begin with deference quickly surfaces as arrogance. And we see it in two ways, by the length of his words and then by the attitude expressed in those words. So let's look at the length of his words. And I'm gonna quickly read verse, uh, verses six through 22 um, in this chapter, and uh, to help us get an awareness of the length of his words, right? So Job now speaks to, sorry, Elihu now speaks to Job's friends, and this is what he says, verse 6. Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak, and many years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not old, the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what what to say. I gave you my attention, and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. Beware lest you say, we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. They are dismayed. They answer no more. They have not a word to say. And shall I wait because they do not speak? Because they stand there and answer no more, I will answer with my share. I will declare my opinion, for I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. He hasn't said anything yet. He says, I'll show no partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person, for I do not know how to flatter, or else my maker would soon take me away. Oh, you don't know how to flatter, Elihu, and you are so full of words that you're going to burst unless you speak. Well, why don't you just say what it is you're going to say, Elihu, and get it over with? 
I have something to say, and what I'm about to say is really important for me to say because uh, you didn't say it, and therefore I'm going to say it because I have... Saul, look at me. I'm going to say something. Get on with it, Elihu. And then he turns to Job in chapter 33. But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I'll open my mouth. The tongue is in my mouth. Speak. My words declare. Will you get on with it, Elihu? You see, the, the point here is just look at me. I have something to say. I am on the scene now. I am important. There's an arrogance here. Stop talking so much about what you're going to say and just say it. Secondly, there's this attitude that is expressed in his words. Notice, if you would please, Job 35 and verse 16. Here is Elihu's assessment of Job. Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. Then his assessment of himself we find in chapter 36, verses 2 through 4. I will begin with verse 4. For truly my words are not false. Oh. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Aren't you glad that I'm here, Job? What I'm saying is true. I have perfect knowledge of this. Now go back to verse 2. Bear with me a little, and I will show you, for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. Hey, God, just so you know, God, I'm speaking for you. I want to let you know that I got your back. I know what it is you want to say to Job, but I'm the one who's going to say it. You, you, see, you see what's going on here? There's this... There's this kind of desire to help, but there's an arrogance in that desire to help. Unfortunately, friends, anger and arrogance are two flaws that show up too much in many Christian leaders. The question is why? Because it's a short distance from a righteous anger against sin and against the maligning of God's good testimony and being overtaken with sinful anger. This is what happens maybe when a believer, a pastor, a Christian leader says, hey, this is sin to actually going out in the streets and screaming at people across the street that they're sinners going to hell. You've just moved over with your anger and arrogance, and what you are saying may be true, but your, your methodology, you've just allowed it to go way beyond what the, the tone of Scripture is saying. Also, it's a short distance from being confident because of God's word to being arrogant with God's word. You get that? Confidence because of God's word to being arrogant with God's word. And friends, there are, these two flaws are flaws that we must battle every day, especially as Christians who have God's truth and are called to defend it. We're called to be bold, to be people of conviction, to be people who believe what we see and we read in Scripture, but we must always have the attitude of the Bereans in Acts 17.11, who received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if the things taught were so. And I say that here as your pastor, I want to declare to you as best I can, this is the word of God, this is what it says, and there are going to be times when I'm not exactly sure, and I'll try and be honest with you, and I'm going to, I'm going to say what I say with conviction because I believe something to be true, and I want to say it powerfully to you, but I also want you to go home, and I want you to dig in your Bibles to find out whether or not what I'm saying is actually true or not. I don't have a bat phone to God. Wish I did. No, that, your younger generation has no idea what I'm talking about. All right? I don't have a phone, an app on my phone. How's that? An app on my phone that somehow says, you know, this is, this is God's desk. You want to interact with him, you know, leave a message. No, I don't have that. But I have his word. And he's called me, he's called us to be students of his word, to be guided and strengthened and shaped and molded by his word. So I want to do that with passion. But friends, 
Please hear this. Don't just say, well, Pastor Rod said, therefore it must be true. I appreciate your confidence in me. And I think there's a place where that kind of guidance is helpful, but listen, what I say should be a motivation to you to go back and to wrestle with the text and to figure out whether it's true or not. Is that fair enough? And if, if I'm not doing it, then I'm not loving you. And if I'm not doing that, we're actually creating a cult following because we're no longer thinking. We're just doing what the leader says. That's not, that's not the role of the church. I am exercising my gift as pastor-teacher to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Not just to say, well, pastor said, there it is. All right? So, the challenge of Elihu's character, first of all, is that he's an angry man. He appears also to be an arrogant man. Now let's consider the, the challenge of Elihu's charge. It appears that the text is telling us that Elihu is both angry and arrogant, but Elihu, with all of his flaws and overreaching claims, also appears to be an accurate man in much of what he says. Not everything. And this is the difficulty of wisdom literature. Some things that are going to be said are outright wrong, but some things he's going to say are actually really helpful and true. In fact, this is difficult in particular because we hold highly the need for godly character in a person as a prerequisite to listening to them or taking their words seriously. So we might bristle, well, why should I even listen to Elihu if he is a flawed man? Flawed man, right here. Flawed man, flawed woman. Why should we bother listening? It begs the question, doesn't it? It's not saying here that we don't, you know, we, we don't work on our flaws, that somehow Elihu's anger and arrogance is justified. It doesn't excuse uh, the need to consider flaws and to, to, to put them into conformity with what God desires. But it does beg the question, should we listen to a person who comes to us in the wrong way and with the wrong tone or do we just write them off? Now, friends, we must always ask the question, regardless of the source, is there anything true or helpful that has been brought to me by that person's criticism or counsel? And, friends, that takes great humility. Now, in pastoral practice, if I get a letter in the mail that is not signed, I won't read it. That's different than what we're seeing here. Because you actually have a flawed person. If it's unsigned, I don't know who it is. And if it's unsigned, it's an undermining tactic. It's not helpful. But if someone comes with the wrong attitude in the wrong way, you know, with anger, arrogance, they may be angry, and that could be sinful. They may be arrogant, and that could be sinful. But they may be accurate in what they have to say. And we've got to figure out some way in our thinking, not just to say, well, they came with you the wrong way. They don't deserve listening to. Maybe God actually wants you to listen to what they have to say. They have a big line of people saying, I don't right? No. But, but life is like that. People, people don't always come to us in the right way. All right? So in what way is Elihu helpful or an accurate man? I have four things. Four ways, four areas. I'm just kind of, kind of walking through the chapters as we do this. First of all, he rightly identifies the empty counsel of Job's three friends. I mean, right at the beginning, he burned with anger, it says, at Job's three friends because they had, no, or had found no answer. They really had no answer for Job except repent of a sin that he hadn't committed. And then he says, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. So Job's three friends stood on their theological high ground and declared Job's suffering was because of some secret sin in Job's life. But the only answer for them was that Job should repent of that sin. And he said, I waited and listened, and you never refuted Job's words or gave him an answer. That's 32, 11 through 15. You just kept hammering on and on about your theology and now you have nothing more to say. 
And he's right. And the reason we know he's right is because later in the book, God tells us that Job's three friends did not serve Job well. So Elihu here is moving Job along by identifying the fact that your three friends have not spoken to you rightly. Secondly, that was short. These ones will be a little bit longer. He rightly identifies the sinful state of Job's heart. Let's look at chapter 33 and verses 8 through 11. Turn there if you would, please. We're going to pause on these a little bit more in the time that we have here just to hear then how God is speaking to Job through this flawed man to move him to a place of preparation to hear from God himself. He says, Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Now, friends, it's important that we understand what Elihu is and is not saying here. He is not saying that Job is suffering because of his sin. But he is saying that as a result of his suffering, Job has sinned. We know from the beginning of the book that Job is a righteous and blameless man in God's eyes. There's no sin that is the reason for Job's suffering, but we'll say it again. Job is not suffering because of his sin, but he has sinned as a result of his suffering. That is what Elihu is bringing up. Now what's interesting is that Job, even though Elihu says, listen, answer me if I'm wrong, Job doesn't respond. And not only that, when we get to the end of the book, after God has spoken to Job, what does Job do? Job ultimately repents. He recognizes a sin that is present. Elihu identifies that sin here as twofold. Pride, Job has overreached in his claim to be sinless. Now Job may have been focusing on his sin, before the suffering, but Elihu is focusing on his sin now because of the suffering. And then also this accusation of God's injustice toward him, that Job has overreached in his accusation that God has been unjust, calling God his enemy. Now I want to find help here by reading Christopher Ash on this found his words to be just helpful and accurate and better to use his words than for me to try and summarize. He says, It is important to feel the force and the surprise of the central issue here. The force of it is quite simply that to accuse God of injustice is a, terrible and a, ter a terribly serious matter. Elihu is angry first with Job because he justified himself rather than God. He's angry that a mortal man should claim and persistently claim to be right in a way that suggested that God must be in the wrong for causing him to suffer. You see that? I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. And if you say that enough times, you're saying, God, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Again and again, as we have listened to Job, we have had to grasp at his audacity in accusing God of injustice. However sympathetic we may be to his plight and however strongly we believe his pro protestations of innocence, which we know to be true from the first and second chapters, something, is, something in us hesitates when we hear him speaking of God with disrespect. It is not true that he is suffering because he has sinned, but it is true that because he is suffering, he has said some sinful things. These will need to be corrected. Now if we turn to the end of the book, chapter 42, verse 6, it's clear that Job is repentant. Not for some secret sin that he's committed that he finally gives into, but for sin that he has committed and is guilty of in his suffering. So Elihu is right. 
in revealing to Job the nature of his sinful overreach before God. And friends, this is what happens. We start out well. We start out by saying things, naked I came from the womb, you know, naked I return. We, we, we start with a right theology, but as the suffering continues, we begin to question. As there's silence, we begin to question, and we begin to challenge, and we begin to wonder whether or not our understanding of who God is is actually true, to the point that we might begin to accuse him of treating us in unjust ways. And who are we to say that God is unjust? There is a sense in which as we went through these texts and Job is saying these things, that he is expressing what he feels God is doing to him, but it moves to the point where he finally is accusing God now of being his enemy and purposely putting him in stocks to be a shame to those around him. We move from from rightful understanding emotional struggle to statements that are sinful overreaches. And friends, this is one of the issues that we must consider when we're going through suffering. We may be right in understanding that our suffering is not due to some secret sin in our past, but we're often found guilty for sins that take place in and through our suffering. And it plays out like this, and you can add to this list. Being angry at God because of your suffering being angry at those around us because we're going through suffering. Fear, anxiety, panic in the midst of our suffering, which means that we are not trusting in God. Treating other people unkindly because we're going through suffering. Taking out our pain on others in a way that we speak, the expectations we have, and the attitudes we show. Going on sinful binges, shopping, eating, Drugs, pornography, drinking. Because we're suffering. We want to feel good. Therefore, we sin. See, and this is what Elihu is getting at. It's not sin caused this suffering, but there is sin that is the result of your suffering. So he rightly identifies the empty counsel of Job's three friends. He rightly identifies the sinful state of Job's heart. Third, he rightly identifies the purposes of man's suffering. I wasn't exactly sure how to say this, but there is this whole section in here in chapter 33 where Elihu helps us understand how God speaks. Now, we must remember that, that, that this record, this event, these, these, this uh, story of Job takes place we understand, before any recorded revelation from God. And that's important for us to recognize because he's going to talk here about God speaking to us through dreams and visions. Look at chapter 33, verse 12. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber in their beds. Then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. So now as we remember that in Bible times, God did sometimes speak to people through dreams and visions. But here's the problem. Not all dreams have hidden meaning, and not all dreams come from God with special messages. Now certainly dreams can be memorable. Sometimes they can be shocking. You know what I'm talking about. You wake up from a dream having, having been in a different world. And it could have been a crazy world. And you are sweating, and you're kind of shocked, and you're not breathing right because you are, in the, you are woken up in the midst of some action activity, and you're like, this is real. But it's a huge leap to say, now, what was God telling me in that dream? We assume that they are messages from God. People who plan their lives around what they learn from a dream book are asking for confusion, 
rather than from, from direction from God. Now, today, His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, directs us through His Word. Today, we have the more sure Word completed and canonized for us. This is the means by which we know God. God breathes to us His Word um, uh, by His Spirit through the Word to our hearts. He guides us and reveals us through these, uh, through these pages. Without getting into a, you know, a long kind of argument here, God is no longer speaking to us directly through dreams and visions, but in Job's and Elihu's day, he did. That was one of the ways that he spoke. Now, he's bringing this up to say this is one way God speaks, to move now to say here's another way that God speaks. He speaks not just in dreams um, and visions, but he also speaks to us through pain and suffering. This is chapter 33, 19 through 33. C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in, in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Again, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That is what Elihu is getting at. So we pick it up here at verse 19 of chapter 33. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones. So his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen. And his bones that were not seen stick out. He, his soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him. It says, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with you. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Jump down to verse 29. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring his soul back from the pit that he might be lighted with the light of life. And this repetition of the pit is giving us a picture that God actually brings us to the pit, speaks to us through that time of suffering to teach us some valuable lessons. Lessons about him, lessons about ourselves, lessons about others. The point is that one of the things that we must be looking for as we go through suffering is this. How is God using my suffering to speak to me, to teach me something about him, about myself, even others. Or to put it differently, what is God teaching you through your suffering? How is he seeking to reveal your weakness, your sin, your inability, or your hopelessness? How is he showing that Jesus Christ is who you need and the only person you ultimately need? So Elihu helps, and he moves Job along by rightly identifying the purpose of man's suffering. Job's three friends didn't go down this path at all. And I think the, the, the fourth and last thing really emphasizes just bringing Job back to a place to understand the sovereignty of God. He rightly identifies the majestic nature of Job's God. It appears that when Elihu gets to chapter 37, something changes in his tone. He's not arrogant anymore. He's not angry anymore. It's softer. It's more personal. It's even pastoral. And he first draws Job's attention to pay attention to the wondrous works of God and then to his righteous justice. Consider the, the wondrous works of God he begins by painting a picture in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 37 of an electrical storm. And then he paints a picture of a snowstorm. And then he paints a picture from verses 11 through 13 of a rainstorm. Again, all these storms, they're storms, right? They're trouble. And then the focal point we have here is found in verses 14 through 18 where God shows himself to be sovereign in all storms. Verse 14, hear this, O Job, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Stop your lamenting, Job. Stop your complaining. 
Stop your demanding. Stop your charging forward. Will you instead consider the wondrous works of God? And I'm reminded of Psalm 46 where the psalmist says, Be still and know that I am God. Friends, we need to hear this. This is good counsel. In the midst of our suffering, we also need to stop complaining. And, and this woe is me talk, our demanding for God to give us insight. And instead, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. And notice, this is a twofold instruction. It's an instruction to stop. And it's also an instruction to consider. So it's an instruction to stop what you're doing and to change what you're doing by considering, by watching, by listening, by absorbing. It's an instruction to pause and to take in God's wondrous works. Look at verses 15 and following. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know the balancing of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who has perfect knowledge? You whose garments are hot, when the earth is still because the south wind, can you, like him, spread out the skies hard as, as a cast metal mirror? Do you know? Take it in. Stop and look. When we consider the wondrous works of God, we come to a realization that God is sovereign over the universe, and if he is sovereign over the universe, then he is also sovereign over our lives. He's not a distant God. He is fully aware. He's fully committed. He's fully in control. And that being the case, we have no place challenging him at all. And we should see ourselves within his creation and ultimately be humble before him, even in our suffering. And friends, there's something about pausing in the middle of your suffering and taking in God's creation in order to be reminded that you are in the hands of a great and a good God. I mean, go out and see a sunset. Take in a sunrise. Watch the birds and the squirrels forage for food. Examine the intricate details of a spider's web. See, so just pause and take in the wondrous works of God. Nature is screaming at us to remind us that God is a God of order, that he knows that he's sovereign, that he's in control. It's reminding us that we're just a small part of that creation, that his purposes will go on without us, that life is brief, it's but a breath, and that we are privileged to live it for his glory one day at a time. So friends, there's a divine perspective available for us when we stop being consumed with our suffering and we pause to take a look at God's wondrous works. A.W. Tozer, you know this full well. It's probably the most famous statement he's made. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'll say that again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important thing about you is who you believe God is. Everything about you is determined by your understanding of who God is. What you think of God is the, the mainspring from which your entire being flows. Your view of God is the foundation upon which your life is built. It gives you direction. It gives you purpose. It gives you strength. It also affects your attitudes, your priorities, your choices, even your destiny. And this is what Elihu is seeking to get Job to see. And when we are struggling through our suffering, we need to be reminded of who God is over and over and over again. That's why we read his word. That's why we sing songs that have a high view of God, which we did this morning. Talk about suffering. Oh, no. Never let go. What are we sing that for? This is its catchy, nice tune. Or is it the content of the song that we want to get deep into our souls? Not only are the wondrous works of God, but the justice now of God. Having drawn Job to see the wondrous works, he, he now concludes with his faithful justice. Look at verse 23. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice and 
abundant righteousness, he will not violate. God is a God of justice, and he will, by his very character, never violate that justice. His character will not let him do that. Job had been a man marked by the fear of God, and this is important because it says in verse 24, Therefore, Fear, uh, man fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their, their own conceit. Job had been marked as a man who fears God over and over again. Chapter 1, verse 1, and 1, verse 8, and 2, verse 3, we find Job being described as a man who fears God. Then at the end of chapter 28, the wisdom chapter in this book, we have this conclusion, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. So what is at the heart of Elihu's angry, arrogant, and now softening words is a concern that Job, in his pain and suffering, has said some things that have been conceded. That Job, through his suffering, has drifted in sinful overreaches away from a healthy fear of God. And so this morning, I want to briefly just leave you with three concluding thoughts. The nature of wisdom literature is not like drinking a can of 7-Up, crisp and clean, no caffeine, as if everything is black and white. Wisdom literature, which is what we're looking at here, causes us to wrestle. And there's, not, there's no clear lines drawn out for us. This, this is the, 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 the work of the Word of God beavering away at our hearts. And what God wants us to see here, three things I want to draw your attention to here that come out of this text. There's more that could be said, but I want you to be reminded here that God speaks to us in our suffering. Now, don't consider me a heretic here. Hear what I have to say. God is not speaking to us through new revelation, but he speaks to us through old revelation, freshly understood, freshly applied. You've heard me say over and over and over again, the time to learn a theology of suffering is not when you're going through suffering, but before suffering comes. But even when you're going through suffering, you are going to be learning some things because God is going to be speaking to you differently through that word. And some passages, some stories, some texts that you knew before now become different to you because you're going through something and there's something in that text now that is alive, that is fresh. It's the old revelation that is still fresh revelation for us. God is still speaking to us. And so I want to encourage you, rekindle your own personal intake of the Word of God, especially in those times of difficulty and struggle. Secondly, God often uses quirky and sinful people to speak into our lives. Now, no, don't be looking at your neighbor or anything like that, okay? You see, they may appear to be angry or arrogant or lacking social graces. They may seem bold, pushy, even rude. They may not be eloquent. They may be ill-timed. They may have bad breath. They may be your spouse. They may be your child, your friend, your coworker, or even a stranger, but they may have something for you to hear that will help you grow in your walk with God to prepare you to meet your maker. And finally, and this is worth noting here, in the end, God will only deal with two groups of people. Those who fear God and those who are wise, wise in their own conceit. These words help to prepare Job, and these words help to prepare us to meet our maker. This is a warning, first of all, to Christians to not allow the struggles of this world to cause them to drift from their sovereign God. To not sin by thinking that in your heart God is your enemy, but to fight to fight, to embrace, to believe with joy that God is fully aware, that God is totally in control, and that God is good in all his dealings. And to remember that his wondrous and mighty creator sent his son to die on the cross for you. 
and become your gracious redeemer. Fred, remember to fear God, to revere him and to respect him no matter what struggles you face. But this is also a warning to non-Christians to not be wise in your own conceit. If you think you're smarter and wiser than God, this text is screaming to you. It is pleading with you. See the majesty of God. Humble yourself before the sovereign God. Plead before the almighty God whom you have offended and to whom you are accountable. Are you ready to meet your maker? If you're breathing still, God is at work preparing you for that day when you'll stand before him. And sometimes it comes through suffering. Lord, help us today now to take in these words of Elihu, to draw, Lord, from this text an understanding that you work in ways that are not ways that we typically would work, that your purposes are right, that you never make mistakes, you never apologize, that, that you use people that are sometimes arrogant and sometimes angry or even rude to help shape us, move us along. Lord, may we humble ourselves before you May the sin that we commit in our suffering be repented of. And Lord, may you help us to keep those accounts short, to walk with you faithfully, struggling to understand, but holding on to your sovereign purposes until we stand before you, Lord. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen.